to the AKC podcast, an audio resource for staff at King's College London following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures which explores diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Handouts, presentation slides and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. afternoon. I thought before I start I'll just give you a little overview of how Ben and I want to operate this afternoon. We're going to go back and forth a little bit and that's a reflection of how we've been teaching this collaborative master's course between the National Gallery and King's for the last 10 years so we thought that dynamic tends to work rather well. Um, so what I'll do is give you a little background about the kind of genesis of the National Gallery and its collection. So I'm going to be talking both about how those paintings came together as a group, how they formed the National Collection, and then a bit about um, the building and the transformation of the building over time, and how those kind of key moments that I'm going to touch on really impacted not only the building and the collection, but the rest of London as well. After I do that, I'm going to hand off to Ben Quash, who's going to sort of take us inside the building and talk about four or five of his favorite paintings. They're paintings that are dear to both of our hearts that I, as I mentioned, we've been teaching them for about 10 years now. So they're pictures that we go back to often and always discover new things about them. He's going to pass the microphone back to me. I'm going to tell you a bit about the last three exhibitions I've done at the National Gallery. I was based there as a curator for 10 years. And I just wanted to tell you a bit about how I think those exhibitions helped us see the collection in a different way, but also how they, I hope, help people see the collection and then take that knowledge and that awareness of the artworks back out into their everyday lives. So kind of breaking down the walls, if you will, of the National Gallery and having those paintings with you in your mind as you go about your everyday work. And that relates to the final thing that Ben is going to say. He's going to talk about the collection, the building, the display of the National Gallery and how that served as a kind of motivating force for a lot of digital media projects that he's been doing that he and I currently do together based here at King's in the Theology and Religious Studies Department. So that's your broad overview. That's, that's the, the journey that we're going to take for the next Hour. As many of you are aware, and I hope almost everyone here has visited the National Gallery in Trafalgar Square, the uh, collection itself was founded in 1824. But actually, that finally came about after decades of discussion. And in some ways, it was a bit of a, an embarrassment for Britain not to have a national collection. If you think about the rest of Europe had already nationalized its great art collections. If you think about the Louvre in Paris, the Alte Pinacothèque in Munich, the Uffizi in Florence, all of those collections have their origins in royal collections. They were collected by princes and kings and were nationalized in the 18th century. So here we are in Britain in the 19th century, don't have a national collection. And members of parliament had been discussing this for decades, as I said. It became a very political thing. What's particularly exciting is three key events happened all at the same time in 1823 that really pushed the government to create this national collection. Remember, this is a collection that belongs to all of us. It doesn't belong to the government. It belongs to 
the nation. It's a really exciting concept. What happened was a major, major collector called John Julius Angerstein, he was a banker, had one of the best collections in London. He had 38 masterpiece paintings. He died, so these paintings became available for purchase. Rather unexpectedly, and I don't think this has ever happened in the history of anything, <laughs> the British government received a repayment for a war debt, surprisingly, from Austria. So they had full coffers, as it were. And then the third kind of clincher, I, as I think of it, is there was another collector who was called Sir George Beaumont. He was an amateur painter himself. He agreed to gift his 16 masterpieces to the nation for the formation of a national collection if the government could provide an appropriate house, a space for them. So really, he provided that impetus. Um, and that really got them going. So all of these three events kind of coincided and the formation of the collection as we know it today, the foundation of that, came together because of those three events. Now, the collection was not housed in Trafalgar Square as we see it here, but um, as you see it in this slide, in Angerstein's house at number 100 Pall Mall. It no longer exists, but it was a sort of tall, narrow townhouse. And you can see how extraordinary <laughs> the collection was. As a, If you think about the history of display, it was packed full of enormous paintings, um, some paintings that should look familiar to you and will do by the end of this lecture if you don't know them already. And if you think about the 38 paintings of Angerstein, the additional 16 bequeathed by um, Sir George Beaumont, Already, this townhouse was packed. And if you read the press at the time in, in the 1820s, it was criticised extensively. And actually, the history of the National Gallery it has a long history of being criticised in the press, even though it's creating such a wonderful thing. So it became very clear early on that the gallery needed a bigger space, a purpose-built space. And the government had been uh, toying uh, for a while with the space that we now know. This particular site in the centre of London had originally housed the King's Muse, so the former stables of the royal family. And it was undergoing a period of regeneration. And this site was deemed absolutely perfect for the National Collection because at that point that site was understood as kind of the heart of London. It was where everyone from different parts of London could meet. And this kind of social aspect of the National Collection was absolutely key to its kind of founding constitution. It was meant to be a collection accessible to all. And so if you read the original constitution, you read how the wealthy would arrive in Trafalgar Square in their very grand carriages, and the poor would actually walk from the East End to be granted admittance to this extraordinary building. What's interesting about that is if you think about those collections before they were housed here, they were always kept in the private houses of wealthy merchants and aristocrats. They were only accessible to the, the friends of those people. The point here is that everyone had, would have access and that it would be free. This is absolutely key. It's still free today. You can go in and see one painting and leave. And part of that same constitution mentions that these are works that should be made accessible for artists, that British artists should be studying the masters of the past in order to better their own artwork, 
And this is a way to sort of produce the next generation of great British artists. So part of this foundation really is about creating a new British identity for the, for the 19th century. Now we'll go past to the next. The building sort of retains its shape and formation, um, but already starts growing out of that space through major acquisitions that were made in the 1850s. I mean, I can imagine this was a dream time to be a director of the National Gallery. The first director, Sir Charles Eastlake, went traveling all over Europe and he essentially went on a shopping spree and he bought some of the most incredible paintings in the collection. It outgrew the space and um, Charles Barry and then his son, Edward Barry, were commissioned to do these additions. And these, you might be familiar with these very grand spaces. There are seven galleries that were added by E.M. Barry in the 1870s. Um, here we are below the crossing of the dome, and here you have the long vista to a very famous painting at the end. You might make out um, George Stubbs' portrait of that famous racehorse whistle jacket just there beyond the doors. This is essentially the entire body of the collection right up until the 1990s. So the gallery continues to acquire, and in fact, two-thirds of the collection are bequests by very famous collectors, and it starts kind of groaning at the seams. It also accommodated the Royal Academy for the first 30 years. So you can imagine it's sort of <laughs> constrained. And this is another kind of key moment then in the history well, the history of all of London, the history of the world. <laughs> but if you think about that crucial location at the centre of London, London was bombed extensively during the Second World War, and almost the first thing that the gallery did was evacuate all of its paintings on the announcement of the war. Uh, they didn't believe that the war would continue for as long as it did. So here I thought I'd show you a picture of one of the um, Venetian pictures being um, evacuated from London, and actually the first temporary houses were these beautiful castles up in Wales were accommodating different parts of the National Gallery's collection. Unfortunately, as you know, the war continued and it became very clear that the paintings couldn't remain dispersed among collections all around Wales. And what the gallery did is actually found a place that, that was large enough that could handle the entire collection. And that was a series of disused uh, mines in Wales. These were slate mines at Manod Quarry. And what they did, rather brilliantly actually, is build these sort of brick bunkers that you see on the screen. And some of you who know the collection well will see some of your favourite paintings there. You have the Michelangelo, the Botticelli, the Lippi, the Raphael, the Pisanello. There they all are perfectly, perfectly preserved for the duration of the war. So war obviously brings um, a number of tremendous difficulties, suffering, sorrows, but the history of the gallery is tied into the war in very interesting ways. It, since its establishment, had become a really important social place, a meeting place where people would have picnics and they would go on their first dates and all of this sort of thing. When the paintings were evacuated from the National Gallery, all the theatres uh, in London were closed, people lacked a place to go and meet and actually bolster morale. So when the bombing subsided somewhat uh, in the 1940s, the gallery did this extraordinary thing called painting of the month. And they brought back one painting from the slate mines every month and hung it. And if you go into the National Gallery archives and you read about 
people who were living in London at this time who went to the National Gallery. Their extraordinary queues, their photographs of people queuing around the block to see one painting. And the morale and the comfort that they write about um, in seeing these pictures is really very, very touching. And in these same accounts, we have people who wrote back to the gallery who visited it years later. And when they saw that painting, some of them burst into tears. The painting then came to mean so very much to them on, on many different levels. And this is the first painting of the month, which Ben Quash will talk about in just a moment. But just think about that big, empty space in Trafalgar Square with just one painting and what it is like to just encounter one painting in a huge building. Something that I do on my lunch break often. I go to the gallery and I look at one painting and I suggest you do it too. Two other positive things came out of the war effort and with all these paintings in the slate mines. This was a really exceptional opportunity for the scholars of the gallery, for the assistant keeper you see here bent over one of the Italian Renaissance pictures, to study the collection in an unprecedented way. And he was able to revise the entire collection catalog. So these catalogs that art historians like myself carry around like little Bibles today, <laughs> all of that work was done during the war where he had that access to the paintings. And there were a group of conservators who were also working on the paintings in the slate mines. They cleaned several of them. And when they were studying the paintings, they noticed that these bunkers that they built actually preserved the condition of the paintings in exceptional ways. They maintained a kind of even humidity, light source, and temperature that benefited the paintings so much that when they were returned to Trafalgar Square in the middle of the pollution and the noise, an entirely new um, conservation program was devised in order to preserve the paintings for future generations. So this all came out of the paintings being preserved in the slate mines. And that takes us up almost to the present day, to the 1990s. Um, I don't know if you ever look across Trafalgar Square in this way, but what I'd like you to notice is at on the very far west end, so on that long vista, you'll see the addition to the National Gallery that was made in the 1990s, in 1991, that was funded by Lord and Lady Sainsbury. And in fact, it's known as the Sainsbury Wing. There was a bombed out site on the site of that building. It was a furniture store and became a parking lot for about 50 years. And finally, the gallery, with the Sainsbury's help, were able to acquire it. And they hired um, a pair of architects to design the new space, Venturi Scott Brown. So Robert Venturi, Denise Scott Brown, did this collaboration. You can see from the outside, they probably won this very competitive um, commission because they're able to kind of unify the facade of William Wilkins building from the 1830s that we've been talking about with this later 1990s building. So on the outside, they create a kind of neoclassical harmonious whole that works with this temple architecture that Wilkins built. But the inside looks like this, and I hope it's not a surprise to you. I hope you've all been in the Sainsbury Wing. They were given the specific remit that they were going to house the early, earliest part of the collection. So almost all the works in the Sainsbury Wing date from about 1260 to 1500. And the majority of them are Italian Renaissance altarpieces. Um, if you are like me, you've spent a lot of time in Florence in particular. You have your favorite Italian architects, and you will recognize the references right away. 
for those of you unfamiliar, I'll just point out to you these long vistas that you have with the gold ground altarpiece polyptych on the vista that is supposed to evoke a church nave with side chapels. Suggestive, very contemporary, but they're supposed to kind of ping a little moment there. And this use of the white, very, very simple white render walls and gray architectural articulation seems completely contemporary. But this was something that the Florentine architect, uh, Filippo Brunelleschi, was absolutely obsessed with. And once Brunelleschi starts designing churches in Florence, they all start to look like this. So next time you go into the Sainsbury Ring, think about Brunelleschi. And now Ben's going to talk about a couple of his favorite paintings. Thank you very much, Jennifer. So you've been hearing about transpositions and relocations. The transposition of the paintings in the war to the, to the mine shafts in Wales is, if you like, a further stage of, of um, relocation, temporary relocation, a sort of uprooting of the paintings and a temporary relocation, which follows on what is already the major relocation of these works from churches mainly, especially the paintings in the Sainsbury Wing, which are the earliest part of the collection. Almost all of those would initially have been made for ecclesial settings, church settings. Many of them are altarpieces and um, most of them were in some way made for devotional use. So putting them in a temple that's a temple to art rather than a temple to God is already a very interesting transformation of their context. And so one of the really interesting questions that I want you to keep in mind as I introduce you to just a few of the paintings is what, what might be happening when uh, a religious work of art, as nearly all of the ones I'm about to show you are, a religious work of art gets put in a gallery. Does it cease to be a religious work of art? Does the space change the work? Or might there be a, an opening up of more possibilities for it that, so that people, as it were, can come and make it part of various stories? Um, of course, partly the story of art, and in many ways the great galleries that were founded in the 19th century had that as their priority. They wanted to tell the story of art with these paintings, who influenced who, what new techniques became available when, and so on. But they also tell stories in themselves, which are parts of the story of the Bible and the story of Christian saints and so on. Those stories still exist. They're still sort of active, if you like, in the works. And they're certainly one of the reasons that people continue to be fascinated by them and come and spend time in front of them. And indeed, in some cases, as those people who work as stewards in the gallery spaces will tell you, they sometimes come and pray in front of them. So although they're no longer in church spaces, there's a sense in which this secular temple to art still functions for some people as a place of devotion, um, that's a, a place of religious devotion. So that's, for me, a, a very interesting aspect of the gallery space. Um, and I thought I'd show you this one first of all, and uh, these, I'm afraid, have to all be very brief introductions to the paintings, which I hope will just whet your appetite and make you go and look at them first of all, for real, in the flesh, so to speak, but also read up more about them on the gallery's website or in its various catalogues. But I, I thought I'd show you this partly because it's one of the paintings that appears very prominently in the background of that image of Angustine's Pall Mall House. So if you go back and look at the PowerPoint later, you will spot it. And also because it, is, it has the distinction of being number one in the gallery's collection. So there are, uh, all the paintings are numbered, uh, and this is NG1. So the first painting, there it is at the bottom, NG1. And it's a huge altarpiece, um, showing as its subject matter something quite rare, actually, for an altarpiece, and that's the, the raising by Jesus of Lazarus, his friend Lazarus, from the dead. After Lazarus has been dead, 
uh, for, I can't remember exactly how many days, but enough for people to be worried that he might be, his corpse might be very smelly. Jesus calls him forth from the tomb. And the great artist Sebastiano del Piombo has more than one of his works is in the gallery collection and who worked closely with Michelangelo and Michelangelo's um, artistic influence is very evident in this work, uh, produces this absolutely monumental evocation of this scene of uh, raising Lazarus from the dead. It's Jesus's last miracle, at least in John's gospel where it's narrated, it's Jesus's last miracle um, before the events of his passion begin. So he He's arrested and, and eventually tried and crucified. So it's a very significant culmination, if you like, of the deeds of power that, that mark Jesus' ministry. And the divinity, the power of Christ's divinity, is one of the things that Sebastiano manages to explore in this painting, I think very impressively, not least through that outstretched and pointing finger. And when you're aware of how closely Sebastiano and Michelangelo are mutually influencing each other, that, that hand might trigger some kind of visual association in your mind. If it doesn't, go and look again at the creation of Adam in the Sistine Chapel ceiling by Michelangelo. You'll, you'll recognise that finger. So this is, as it were, a moment of new creation. It's, the res- it's Christ's power to bring life out of death and to bring life where there was no life before, just as in that moment of the first creation of Adam, as we see it on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, life is created out of nothing. Human life is created out of nothing. There's so much more we could say about this, but that just to give you a taste of how a work of art like this can do really interesting theological work through visual connections. So the connections between the paintings are actually communicating theological meaning, religious meaning, um, that has a lot to do with how Christ is understood and interpreted and in Christianity worshipped. Well, here's possibly the public's favourite painting in the Sainsbury Ring. It certainly is, has a sort of aura of reverence around it. And if we're thinking again about how the gallery space might have some, some of the qualities still of a religious space, um, this, above all, I think, um, helps to bring that out because uh, a special little chapel, as it were, in inverted commas, a little area within the Sainsbury Wing was designed with this painting in mind. I think that's right, isn't it, Jennifer? So uh, because it has a a particular attraction for visitors, and there is an extraordinary stillness, I think, that this painting communicates, so that when you go into the little space, is it there at the moment? Because they they took it out and allowed some other paintings in there, and now they've put it back again. Um, If you go into that little space with this painting, you do often find that people's voices are more than usually hushed and there's a certain sort of stillness and almost aura, to use a controversial word, uh, in that space that this painting helps to generate. And it's partly because of the stillness and the extraordinary kind of, not quite, equilibrium is the word I'm looking for, of of the painting, and especially of the way that central body, the body of Christ, who's being baptised by John the Baptist, is poised and a, a vertical line runs from the dove of the Holy Spirit, which is above his head, whose beak points downwards, runs down through the trickle of water that's being tipped by the Baptist from that little cup onto Christ's head, down the centre of his face and the centre of his um, hands, which are touching together in a gesture of prayer, right down, as it were, his centre of gravity becomes aligned with uh, a vertical that organises the whole of the composition. And uh, that sense of poise 
is one of the reasons I think that this communicates an extraordinary, um, has an extraordinary effect on those who stand and contemplate it in the gallery space. The colour of Price's skin is a match for the colour of the skin of the man who's undressing, or perhaps getting dressed, I think probably undressing, in preparation for being baptised. And that too communicates the, the solidarity, the unity of Christ with the human flesh of others, the incarnation, the, the idea that Christ comes to join with humanity's own flesh is wonderfully displayed in this, this matching of the colours of the two naked bodies. This is, as it were, a, a participation, an identification with the human body, the human condition. Leonardo da Vinci's uh, Virgin of the Rocks, one of two versions of the Virgin of the Rocks, the other is in the Louvre in Paris, and they were reunited rather wonderfully um, a few years ago in the big Leonardo exhibition that the gallery hosted. And this I find a fascinating painting, partly because the landscape is so mysterious. It's interesting to note that um, Leonardo began painting this picture as Columbus was discovering a strange new world, the Americas. And there is a sense of it being a strange world in itself. That's a landscape some people have speculated that's a sort of primordial landscape, as yet untouched by human manufacture, human building, even human agriculture. It has that sense of still being naked, almost quite raw, because it's quite rocky and forbidding in certain aspects. Um, the sense of the raw materials of creation itself. And perhaps, therefore, it represents a sort of paradise-like environment, either before or after time, or both either before human sin and human activity have left their mark upon the world, or when that activity and sin have been redeemed and the world's been restored to its primordial goodness. And in that way, that mysterious and suggestive way, it's also very eloquent about the status of Mary, who's the central figure in this grouping, which also includes a little John the Baptist on the left, as you look at the painting on her right, uh, a little Jesus who sits a little below with his two fingers raised in blessing, and an angel who sits to Christ's right. These are, again, figures who in various ways might be free of sin or in some way able to participate in this paradise-like reality. And Mary, above all, who in Catholic tradition is regarded as herself uh, immaculately conceived, so without sin, and therefore worthy to be the bearer of Christ in her womb. So we get a glimpse, if you like, of what human destiny might be if it's restored to a state of primal goodness and primal innocence. And these figures, including the angel, represent citizens, if you like, of heaven and something which we might want to aspire to, even in the middle of noisy, dirty, less noisy and dirty than it used to be, uh, but noisy and dirty Trafalgar Square. You can step, as it were, into this space and have your imagination opened to the idea of a world very different from London. This is the painting that was the first to come back as the painting of the month, Titian's Noli Me Tangere, which depicts uh, Mary Magdalene on the morning of the resurrection, visiting Christ's tomb at dawn and encountering someone she initially supposes to be the gardener. Uh, and then when he eventually calls her name, she realises it is Christ and that he's risen from the dead. And this very, very intense moment, which is almost, again, a moment of new creation, a new dawn in which life comes back from the tomb. Christ's life is restored and human life is given a new promise, something uh, to anticipate, to look forward to, something which, as it were, again, promises the restoration of all things. That moment of new creation is 
as it were, like the restoration of paradise. And so you see this particularly verdant ground around the feet of Christ. Mary, who's reaching towards him, is on much drier, more brown, barren soil. But the sense of the, the verdancy, the new life that's springing up around the risen Christ and the more lush landscape that recedes behind him on that side of the painting suggests this promise of something wonderful to come, just as the light of the dawn is breaking over the horizon behind them. And one of the wonderful things about this painting is the way that different movements and objects within it sort of intersect with each other. So the tree, for example, uh, which creates a sort of division down the middle of the painting, is a marker, perhaps an echo of the tree in the Garden of Eden, which caused Adam and Eve to sin, first of all, perhaps also an echo of the tree with which the cross of the crucifixion is also compared, and perhaps also an echo of the tree that will be, according to the book of Revelation, that will grow for the healing of the nations in the great, in the heavenly Jerusalem at the end of time. This tree is a a sort of evocation of various significant aspects of the entire history of salvation. And Christ leans towards it, his arm crossing over it, the arm holding the, the scythe, or it's actually more of an adze. It's something that that you might use to dig ground. And so it helps to explain why Mary might have thought he was a gardener, although he's not dressed exactly like a gardener. You'd be quite surprised if someone turned up dressed like that to do work in your garden. Um, But his arm crosses over and into her space, as it were, while her arm crosses over, not touching him, because as the title of the painting suggests, she isn't, she's forbidden by him to touch his body, but in at least to the space demarcated by his robes. And so they're each, as it were, crossing a little bit into each other's space. And her body from below curves upwards and, if you like, follows the line of the tree towards the golden dawn that's breaking. So she's moving, as it were, from earth to heaven, just as he angles his body over her. And, in a way, the line of his curved body is picked up by the line of the hill that ascends towards the human habitations that we see on that distant hill. So it's as it were that even he, the heavenly one, is still leaning towards earth, inclining his, him, his body and his attention towards the things of earth. So the man of heaven still inclined towards the things of earth and the woman of earth being drawn up towards the things of heaven. Again, there's so much theological richness in these works that we could spend a whole lecture just on this. Um, I'm conscious of time. This is another great painting, not an altarpiece, actually, although it is exploring, I suppose, in some ways, the Eucharist, the great celebration of Holy Communion, which is at the centre of Christian practices of worship, through recalling the gospel story of Christ's appearance to two disciples at Emmaus after his resurrection and after they spent a long time walking with him, not recognising him, um, talking about the events of the crucifixion. And they invite him to join him for dinner as they arrive at this inn after nightfall. And at the moment when he blesses the bread, his identity becomes clear to them. And this is the moment when they're throwing out their arms or, in the case of the disciple on the left, about to shove his chair back in astonishment as the penny drops and they realise who they've been with all this time. That sense of of, of a sudden discovery, a sudden epiphany of something that you didn't expect is an opportunity for Caravaggio, which he really enjoys, I think, to play with the unexpected. And so he's given us a very unusual image, at least for this period in Western art, of a Christ without a beard, because it's become very conventional to show Christ bearded. 
And so he plays again with our expectations, makes us, puts us in the position of the disciples, puzzled by who it is, because he doesn't look like he ought to, as it were. And so as he shows us their discovery, he also invites us to overcome our prejudices and to, to look in a new way and rediscover who this is. And there are various other ways too in which the painting doesn't, you know, actually tries to draw us into it and um, make us existentially involved with it emotionally and as well as with our minds. So look at the way the fruit basket at the front of the table, very famously, is poking off the edge. It almost has the effect of making you want to reach in and steady it. And also the way in which the outflung, the left arm of the, of the disciple who's throwing out his arms seems almost to break out of the picture space into our own. So connecting the world of the story in Luke with the world of Caravaggio and the world of us now as we go and look at it. That sense of crossing time and making some kind of epiphany, a possible, a present possibility, is something that I think Caravaggio succeeds almost incomparably in doing. And then last of all, Van Gogh's Sunflowers, and I just put that, I'm not going to say anything about it, but just if you do go to the gallery, I wonder why there's always a huge crowd around Van Gogh's Sunflowers uh, and in a way that you've, you don't very often find in the Sainsbury Wing. And is there a different sort of religiosity associated with some of these great figures? The tortured genius, Van Gogh appeals to all of the things we like to think artists are. The tortured genius, cutting off his own ear and all of that. Um, and there's something sort of almost devotional about the fact that people will come and spend so much time in the Impressionist galleries. Um, but I just put that as a question for you to reflect on. Back to you. So this is where I um, take you through a whistle-stop tour of the last three shows uh, I did at the gallery. And really, I've just chosen slides and aspects of the exhibitions I wanted to highlight in this context, which um, enable me to tell you about how I've used National Gallery pictures or themes from those pictures to try and expand the story beyond the gallery walls and to help people feel like they're carrying those, those objects with them wherever they go. Or perhaps you might go into collections in different parts of the world and, and look at them quite differently having seen these shows. Um, the first one relates quite well to some of the things Ben has just been talking about. It's this Devotion by Design exhibition I did in 2011. And the slide I brought to show you was the um, central room of the exhibition space, the, the largest room, if you know those exhibition spaces, in the Sainsbury Wing underground, slightly bonker-like, not so fun to install in. And what I wanted to do is after a sequence of rooms that were full of information and diagrams and explained how different altarpieces were built and the carpentry and everything like this, I had a very still room, which you can see is exceptionally darkly lit or not lit. <laughs> and the altarpieces are not hanging as they are in the exhibition spaces upstairs, which, as you may know, are hung rather evenly, evenly lit, nice long labels and are hung chronologically and geographically, according to the geog geographic area that they were created in. This instead is meant to resemble a 15th century Tuscan church with altarpieces from different time periods on actual altars. There's no labels in this room, which I thought I'd get lots of angry letters about, and I didn't, so hurrah. Um, and the intention which people got right away was stop reading labels and look at the artworks and notice that they're not simple easel pictures hanging on a wall, but they functioned, they had very specific functions that were tied to their original context, which means they were altarpieces. And one in particular I decided could be my high altarpiece, this amazing Signorelli. And you can see that even just by shifting the benches and making them look a little bit like church pews, 
and by creating altar steps and altar, adding candles and a crucifix that I borrowed from the V&A, suddenly this painting that hangs normally almost every day in the gallery is activated and it becomes very clear that altarpieces were dramatic backdrops for the celebration of the Eucharist at that site. All of that without any labels. <laughs> I thought that was really um, exciting. And I worked with some lighting designers. You'll notice that there's um, curious stripes across that gallery floor. And I was hoping that that might create a kind of virtual architecture that people, certainly those who have been to Italy and know that dramatic Italian light, would notice the way that light often comes down through that upper clear story level and creates these pools or dark stripes of light and dark on um, church floors. And that's what I was trying to create, a kind of more immersive environment for the artworks. This, there are two um, altarpieces that were the kind of jumping off point for me for the second exhibition I did, which was called Visions of Paradise. This was um, the way Jacopo di Cione's altarpiece is traditionally hung in the National Gallery, which is nice enough, unless you know that that's only a fragment of a much larger, in fact, rather enormous polyptic. And rather sadly, it had never been seen like this in its entirety since it had been chopped up in the 17th century. So for me, this was a really exciting moment to show it in its entirety. You understand it in context. You understand how all of the different scenes relate to each other. And then you start realizing that it was actually a piece of architecture in and of itself and the way we think about site-specific works today, it is a site-specific work. And it was related and is related to another painting in the collection, which had long hung above the Sainsbury Wing staircase, that dramatic entrance that uh, Venturi Scott Brown designed. And rather beautifully, that painting used to draw you up those stairs in a wonderful way, a kind of portal you can see this kind of spaceship at the top of that staircase. And you'd get to the top of the stairs and you'd still be five meters below that painting. <laughs> so you'd be somewhat satisfied, but you couldn't see it up close and in detail. So I wanted to take it down, take it out of that awful frame and show it this way as it was intended to be shown in the church for which it was made in Florence, which happens to be the same church as the other altarpiece I just showed you. That church was destroyed in the 18th century and so what I did is actually I went to Florence with a team of architects and we went through the archives and we found the original site of the church itself and we did a whole series of elaborate um, measurements and we were able to essentially digitally recreate the church. Here I'm showing you a point cloud model of how we did that and I wanted to make it clear to especially the inhabitants of this neighborhood in Florence who are all wonderful and helped a great deal how the urban fabric of the city right now actually contains within it the um, vestiges of that church and you can go and have a look on the National Gallery website for the digital reconstruction and the story of the reconstruction of this church and then there's a rather fun moment where the two altarpieces zoom and are fit back into the chapels for which they were created. And all of a sudden, all of the painting, the iconography, the compositions make sense because you understand them as site-specific works. The last show um, I did, which ended about a year and a half ago, was called Monochrome, and it traced the history of painting in black and white from medieval to contemporary. And this is something I'm particularly interested in now, making these connections between historic works of art and contemporary art. And if you think back to what I said at the beginning of this lecture, this was always the intention of the National Gallery. This is for artists to go and study all of the best art 
of the previous centuries and to create something new for themselves. So after going through 700 years of the history of art, you ended up in this room called Obstruction, where you have Cy Twombly, Kazimir Malevich, you have Gerhard Richter. We could be in Taint Modern. You could see that the traditional National Gallery goers walked into this room and they didn't know, <laughs> they didn't know where they were. And that was my intention, to, to start making those bridges and those connections across the collection. And then, as they turned around that temporary wall, the intention was to intrigue them a little further, and perhaps some of you saw this, but you would walk into this room, which is probably the most provocative thing I could have ever done, and I'm delighted the director allowed me. I did a whole room without any objects in it, <laughs> but this was a light installation by the Danish Icelandic artist Oliver Eliasson. And as you can see, it looks very yellow for an exhibition about black and white, but essentially it's um, high-frequency uh, sodium lights, which essentially drain everything of color. So when you walked into that space, all of your dear friends and colleagues that you were with are suddenly colorless, or any objects that you bring into the space. And that shift that happens is extraordinary, what it does to your eyes and your brain, and it helps you see things in an entirely new light. Sorry, that pun was unintended. Um, so, for example, you see my colleague there in the dress. Her dress is orange and pink, and you would never know it. And the intention there is after going through the sequence of six rooms, peering into these little black and white figurative paintings and wondering why artists over the centuries had elected to paint in black and white, you essentially became the subject of the exhibition at the very end, so that you exited and you went back into Trafalgar Square, and all of a sudden, all the color of London and the noise and everything kind of came at you like an assault onto the senses and really helped you realize um, by suppressing one sense, how others became heightened. And really, I think, or I hope, made you question about what kind of presumptions um, you bring to everyday life, how you might read a person or a thing in certain ways. And with that, I'm just going to hand quickly back to Ben to talk about the last digital media Thank you. interpretation. So that, that last installation that Jennifer so boldly put into the end of the monochrome exhibition in a way, it has, its, it has its own analogies with the religious paintings I was showing you earlier on, because in both cases, they have this power to make you think about who you are. And so, you, you know, looking at yourself in black and white, as you said, and then going out back into the, into the square and thinking, what sort of, what world am I in? What are these colours? Um, how can I appreciate them in a new way? Those are what I was calling, in a rather grand way, existential questions. So you actually think about your body, yourself, your location... And the work of art is doing far more than just being an object of interest that you, as it were, rather dispassionately and objectively assess. It involves you. And, and those religious works were made to involve you as well. And I think one of the really exciting new developments since the year 2000, helped by exhibitions like the ones that Jennifer's curated, is that it's much more adventurous in exploring themes through its exhibitions, not just let's learn more about a particular artist or a particular period of art, or a particular style, or a particular set of techniques, or how objects were made, and so on. All of those still go on, and they're very important um, things for a gallery to help people explore. Um, but they're not the only things that you might do with a collection like that in the National Gallery. There are, there are big themes about human life, death, hope, sin, indeed. There's an exhibition coming up later this year in April called Sin, um, and... Uh, 
that's again a very bold exploration of things to do with the human condition and ourselves, which the collection can help you explore because it helps you think about these things because the themes that the artists themselves have deployed in their work are themselves explorations of these big themes. So it takes the lid off some of the large questions of human life and the kind of world we live in, how to live in it well, and so on. Um, and, and it's something that actually, therefore, in a way, has more in common with the sort of things you might explore in philosophy and theology than just what you might have explored in traditional art historical, with traditional art historical tools. Very quickly, as we finish, I want to show you a couple of ways in which the idea of breaking down the walls of the gallery that Jennifer already raised can be extended into the virtual realm. So one of the things that we were involved with a few years ago in 2016 was the creation of a series of Stations of the Cross. The Stations of the Cross are traditional devotional practice that Christians do usually in Lent, in the period preparing for Good Friday and Easter, which is to follow the stages of Christ's journey to the cross and stop at 14 different points and um, make a particular devotion, say a prayer or whatever, at each of those 14 points. It's based on what pilgrims to Jerusalem would originally have done as they followed what was thought to be Jesus's route carrying the cross to Golgotha, where crucifixion took place. But it got exported so that people who couldn't make it to Jerusalem could do it wherever they lived, often within a church building. And what Aaron Rosen, who was my colleague then uh, here at King's, decided to do was to create a stations trail that was across the whole of London. Um, and so with the help of an app that you can still download, you can't visit all the works because some of them were only temporary, but you can look at images of them. You can download a light for free and you can see how that worked. And one of the really interesting ways for me that, that the really interesting effects of it was that people might be standing next to each other in the National Gallery. And for some people, they would be at whatever it was, the seventh station, and they'd be going on to see a work of art in a public place or in a church as their next stop. Whereas somebody else might be looking at the painting um, as part of a, a visit only to the gallery and their next stop would be the next painting along or some other gallery within it. So you had pilgrims, as it were, or worshippers almost, alongside people who were coming to visit the gallery as a more secular space. And you couldn't differentiate between them just by looking at them. They were together but using the same painting in different ways and for different ends. And that possibility, that sense of there being more than one possibility in the way that the, the gallery itself works, and that way that the breaking down, of, as it were, of a, of, a, of a narrow identity of the gallery as just a secular space was really interesting to me. And some, actually, some of the works that were in churches as part of this exhibition were, were actually the far more adventurous contemporary works of art. Um, so you had, as it were, churches sponsoring quite adventurous contemporary art, and galleries housing very, very traditional devotional works. And so there were lots of ways in which things were getting a bit mixed up. And the walls of churches were made more permeable. The walls of the gallery were made more permeable. And people moved in and out of them um, on the, in the course of following the stations. And the last thing I want to say is that, is that the big project that Jennifer and I work on at the moment here at King's is called the Visual Commentary on Scripture. And it is in part inspired by... Uh, one very particular exhibition space within the National Gallery, Room 1. And Room 1 is where small exhibitions happen. There are just three walls. It's one room, and there are just three walls, apart from the wall with the doorway in it where you come in. And in seeing those three walls, you have the opportunity, some ex exhibitions in Room 1, but quite a lot of works in there, 
squeeze them in. But you could just have one work of art on each wall. And part of what we're doing, if you visit our visual commentary on scripture website, is to create very intensive exhibitions using just three works at a time that are, used, that are all about a particular passage from the Bible. Eventually, our, our ambition is to cover the entire Christian Bible, breaking it down into passages and creating small online exhibitions around each one. But that room one model of just three works, as you can see various examples of behind me here, is to give you a new way of looking at the biblical text and a very intensive experience of how visual art can open your eyes to epiphanies of a certain sort. Um, and in that sense, to, um, to further the work that the physical exhibitions in the gallery are already doing to kind of grab people, make them involved and get them to think not just about the history of art, but about themselves and God and all sorts of big questions. I hope you'll go away thinking about some of those questions. Thanks for your attention and interest. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.